the wisdom of God. Oh, Abe, you might have to run this thing. Uh, that we'll be talking about. <clears throat> I might have to have you click on through. I can't get my thing to work again now, Abe. We'll see. Sorry, dude. It was working. Let me try one more time. Nope, sorry, Abe. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, here's some biblical data. What is the wisdom of God? They mentioned in there, obviously, briefly, most of that was the application, more or less, of how we think about wisdom applied to us. Um, but the wisdom of God is uh, measured in one way. I think that's right, an attribute of who God is. So what is it, and how do we see it? That I stole this outline straight up from uh, Stephen Lawson. It was really helpful. Um, two major sections of thinking about wisdom is the definition of wisdom and then the displays of God's wisdom, as you'll see in the, the outline. So we'll talk through that, and then we'll talk a little bit about in small groups. A handful of verses of some just, uh, additional biblical data um, to think about the wisdom of God. There's a bunch more that we'll be going through, but here's four for starters. Uh, Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Job 12, 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Isaiah eleven two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And finally, Romans sixteen twenty seven, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's a few biblical data points to be thinking about wisdom. It's quite a bit. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more in the scriptures that talk about God's wisdom. This is actually one area I haven't, I don't tend to think very much. I don't separate it much from God's power, which we'll be talking about next week, for instance. But here's some definitions. I basically have a handful of definitions um, that I've stolen from a number of people. They all pretty much overlap. So you can write however you want. I'll have one verse on the screen in a minute here. Um, here's a couple of attempts at simply giving a pithy definition of what the wisdom of God is. Um, you could say something like, all of God's choices are perfect choices. All of God's choices pursue the highest end and the best means by which to arrive at that end. God chooses the highest end and the best means towards that end or to arrive at that end, that final goal, which you could say is the glory of God and the good of his people, that highest end. The glory of God and the good of his people. Here's how Wayne Grudem puts it. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. This definition goes, way, uh, goes beyond the idea of God knowing all things merely and specifies that God's decisions about what he will do are always wise decisions. That is, they always bring about the best results 
from God's ultimate perspective, and they will bring about those results through the best possible means. God is wise, in other words. Uh, a, a few weeks back, several weeks back, the beginning of the semester, we studied God's intellectual attribute, attribute of omniscience. Actually, I think we had a video. I can't recall on that one now. But of God knowing all things. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Uh, as Gruda mentions, uh, it certainly uh, includes and overlaps a great deal with God's wisdom. But God's wisdom has specifically to do with what he does with all his knowledge, right? How he does it. What he does, how he does it for what reasons he does it, that those things are always ultimately the best things. That, uh, well, get sidetracked here. Uh, ultimately, God's wisdom, uh, in addition, is also a moral consideration. They mentioned that in the video very briefly. Um, but it's not just the best thing in some abstract sense, like uh, the correct math equation. It's uh, intimately a moral thing, God's wisdom is. What is best is also what is good, what is righteous, and what leads towards the highest good, his people's good and God's fame, God's glory. So it's not just best in the, in an in a abstract sense. It's a moral best. It's good. So God knows, knows all things. He chooses the best path, path or use of all things. Uh, here's Piper. Here's a lengthy quote from Piper I thought was helpful on how knowledge and God's wisdom intersect. Um, This is mostly about his knowledge in thinking about the foundation of what he does with these things in his wisdom. He says, quote, Sometimes in the Bible, knowledge and wisdom are almost interchangeable. But generally, knowledge is awareness of facts, and wisdom is awareness of how to use those facts for good goals. He says on later, Paul says that God's knowledge is unfathomably deep. He knows all recorded facts, all the facts stored in all the computers and all the books in all the libraries in the world. But vastly more than that, he knows all events at the macro level, all that happens on earth and in the atmosphere and in the farthest reaches of space and every galaxy and star and planet. And all events at the micro level, all that happens in molecules and atoms and planets And all events at the, oh, sorry, atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons and quarks at the micro level. (laughs) He knows all their movements in every location and every condition of every particle of the universe at every nanosecond of time. And he knows all events that happen in human minds and wills, all volitional and emotional and spiritual events, all thoughts and choices and feelings. And that includes past, present, and future. He knows every event that has ever happened and ever will happen at every level of existence, physical, mental, volitional, and he knows how all facts and all events of every kind relate to each other and affect each other. When one event happens, not on- he not only sees it, but he sees the eternal chain of effects that flow from it and from all the billions of events that are unleashed by every other event. He knows all this without the slightest strain on his mind. That is what it means to be God, considering this topic. Isn't that something? (laughs) And knowing all that, he makes the best choices with it. So there's some pithy definition. Um, Here's uh, more helpfully, probably, I think, 
the displays of God's wisdom. There's three categories. Maybe you can think of more than this, but I, I couldn't think of any more, certainly. Apparently neither could Stephen Lawson, um, that he displays his wisdom in different ways throughout his, uh, uh, well, <laughs> different ways throughout his creation, you could say. But uh, one is creation, two is providence, and Christ, his cross, and his church. Those are, those last three are one. So first, uh, creation. This is something like, uh, analogy, something like the colors and contours of a master artist's brush on canvas. His painting, all of his choices of where he puts the paint have their place, all have their purpose, and ultimately uh, paints a beautiful picture. The dark spots, the light spots, all put together, all gathered together and considered as a whole, pre-creates this beautiful canvas. This is what God is like in creation. And the metaphor, I think, is really, really important because in that example, what's being created is beautiful to behold and makes much of the painter, does it not? Um, It's one of my favorite metaphors when it comes to this. It makes much of the artist as a great artist, and it's a beautiful enjoyment thing to behold. That happening uh, is is what's going on in creation. It's not just a metaphor. The scriptures talk like this all the time. Psalm 19, 1 through 2, a famous one about the purpose of the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the world, as God's canvas, is declaring something, it's speaking something, and it's saying God is glorious, God is good, God is the point. That's what it does. This is God's choice in all of creation. Psalm 104, 104 verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So the psalmist is very aware that God's creation has this purpose, right? Um, his manifold works. In wisdom, he's made everything. Everything is full. The earth is full of his creations. It's full of his creatures. And that is by the hand of his wisdom. And the psalmist is, you know, extolling God for that. That's what he sees. He's extolling the wisdom of God. Isn't God marvelous? Isn't God wise in how he's made the world? Uh, Steve Lawson says the entire, and I'll put this up there, the entire universe is a theater to showcase the glory of God. The entire universe is a theater, has a stage, and what's being showcased is the glory of God. And considering in this uh, light, it's showcasing the wisdom of God. Look how wise are God in in all the ways in which he's created. Uh, Romans 1, 20 through 23, famous passage. I'm going to read a couple of verses. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, Paul says, in the things that have been made. So God's been clearly perceived in what he's made. And so they're without excuse, unbelievers, Paul is talking about. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things it is foolishness paul says to suppress and reject 
the Lord of all wisdom and worship that, that which he has wisely made instead. And Paul, this is one of the most famous passages, important passages in the New Testament about the nature of God's self-revelation and how it, is, uh, it convicts us and holds us accountable that God has done this and shown himself in the stuff he's made. It was his idea, right? Um, I find this really, really fascinating, even if you, if you came and watched the collision video, was that two weeks ago now? In which, you know, I remember the, the scene in which Hitchens is in the back of the, the car with Wilson, he's saying, he's talking about him and his atheist buddies, the, the four atheistic, you know, horsemen of the apocalypse. And he's saying all the arguments, what's the best arguments for God's existence and what do you find most difficult? And he says the one that they find, they all agree, is, is the hardest or, or, or the most difficult to respond to is a fine-tuning argument. And the fine-tuning argument has to do with all of the, you know, tens of thousands, you know, even a hair breadth of a, of a hair, of a hair, a one way this way or that in terms of the, you know, the strong nuclear force and all these different things and there'd be no existence, right? And so they're experiencing as professing unbelievers that what Paul says is quite obvious. God has made himself known. He has shown himself and it's, it is obvious, you know, it's incredibly obvious. It's powerful even to a you know, more or less committed atheist, it smacks them in the face. And he was very, he was rather candid in that moment. Uh, Andy Wilson, he has this, I posted this on Facebook. I don't know if anybody watched this or seen this before. Andy Wilson has this 10-minute short talk at a Design God conference that I recommend watching. I just posted it yesterday. And he says a number of things. It was about C.S. Lewis of the conference. But he has some uh, comments about the amazingness of the created world. And when he is talking about the amazingness, I can't help but think and extol the wisdom of God. I want to continue to think about the intricacies, the incredibleness of the world displaying a wise uh, creator. Here's a couple things he says. He's all like, you know, I don't know if you know Andy Wilson. He's you know, all relaxed and flippant about it, but it's very, very entertaining. He says, he's talking about the planet. He says, and our planet, oh yeah, planet, realize we're on a planet. We're on a rock, mostly molten lava, flying through outer space at about Mach 86. Right now, really fast, like a yo-yo being swung. Oh, yeah, and we're going around a ball of fire in the sky. <laughs> that's, that's the world we inhibit in the context, too. He's talking about, like, if you describe this to someone and you say this is in a book, what section in the library is that? It's in the fiction section. It's in the fantasy section, right? We're flying around. We're on a rock of molten hot lava, flying around a ball of fire in the sky being held by nothing. Right? That belongs with wizards and magic and things like that. That's his point. He goes on. He says, we don't just lie to children. Caterpillars really turn into butterflies. They actually do. <laughs> they scoot around all day eating everything and then stop. Then for my next trick, I will turn into a soup. <laughs> liquid. Turn into full-on liquid. And I will reconstitute myself as a gentle flying object. <laughs> and he lists a number of these things in this little clip. And you can listen to his talk like this way all the time. And it's really helpful. And his whole point in the context, he was saying, people accuse Lewis of being, you know, he wants a better world, C.S. Lewis, when he writes fiction. He wants a more interesting world. So you read fantasy and you read J.R.R. Tolkien and stuff, and it's really exciting, and our world is really boring. And so they wrote those things to really escape and find something more interesting in this world. And he says that was not at all Lewis's point. Lewis's point was to actually, he noticed the insane beauty, crazy weirdness of this world and wanted to give an homage to it. It was... 
It was a response to this world, this caterpillar, you know, that whole point. We don't lie, you know, we lie about Santa Claus. We make up worse stories that turn out to be lies when we have insane beauty and intricacy and mystery all around us that's not a lie, you know, and caterpillars. That's incredible. They do. I watched a whole series on it, uh, Butterfly, one time. You ever know this? They actually basically turn into a liquid. They, like, liquefy. And he's not making it up. And they turn, and then they turn into a gentle flying object. It's absolutely in- incredible. And I'm not just, like, whatever. I don't know, you know, putting that on to be all, you know, Mr. Impressed by that. It really is a jaw-dropping, amazing, incredible thing. The wisdom of God designing a world that that would happen. Not to mention a thousand other, ten million other examples that you could think of. But we get a little bored with it, right? And so we could go on and on. So an exhortation right in the middle of this, when it comes to God's wisdom being displayed in creation, is that I think we should become a little bit more like children in this regard, and many more regards. We shouldn't be shy. I would encourage you not to be self-conscious about being re-amazed at that which was created. Um, uh, certainly, I think Jesus would include this, m- maybe to a lesser degree than other things in terms of when it comes to faith, saving faith. Uh, but he would include this in the exhortation to become like children. And unless you become like children, you're amazed at the wisdom of God in the created world. And you look at a butterfly, a caterpillar, liquefying and turning into a butterfly, and don't yawn. I mean, it's, it's mysterious. It's incredible. It's amazing. And you know, it does belong in the fiction and fantasy section. So don't be shy about this or self-conscious. Quite the opposite. Um, if anything, we should feel ashamed at how unimpressed we often are. We're used to things, right? And that's a really quite a shame. So the wisdom of God to create such a place that works at every level, the micro and the macro level, and it's all, or much of it anyways, infused with beauty and wonder while it works so perfectly. So it isn't just a beautiful painting on a canvas. It works, right? That whole thing that happens with the butterfly is turns into a beautiful flying object. Like, why does it have to be beautiful? So it's beautiful and it works. God is incredibly wise. Isn't that something? And I know, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't, sometimes I feel like I could go on and on and on about the nature of the creation Partly because of things like that. When I hear that, I heard that years ago and read Lewis and start, anyways, I have my mind reopened a bit to appreciate and glorify and praise the Lord for his wisdom in his world. It's amazing. So that's creation, God displaying himself in creation. Uh, secondly, in providence. Here's a quote from, oh shoot, who is this? Packer, J.I. Packer. Put that in there. Providence is a continued exercise of divine... You don't have to write all this down if you want. Obviously, it's long, but... Providence is a continued exercise of divine energy whereby... I can't read what I wrote. What's the next word? Whereby the creator... Sorry, getting y'all off. Whereby the creator, according to his own will, A, keeps all creatures in being, B, involves himself in all events... C, and directs all things to their appointed ends. The model is of purposive personal management with total hands-on control. God is completely in charge of this world. 
His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. There's a wordy definition of providence. God's in control. God is hands-on. He directs all things. He's personally involved, and it is uh, uh, purposeful and personal management. That's an overview of what providence is. God's displaying his wisdom in his providential control of the world with an emphasis on the nature of it being his wisdom, not just his control. Uh, a couple of verses, Genesis 50, verse 20, um, just boilerplate verses in the scriptures talking about the providential nature of God's control of all things. This is Joseph talking to his horrible brothers, um, who at least at one point were just wretched brothers who sold him into slavery, just about murdered him, if you recall the story. And they're terrified. They were starving, came to him for food, and, you know, he pulls the wool over their eyes for a number of times and finally reveals who he is. And they're terrified that he's going to have him murdered because he's, you know, basically rules all of Egypt. And he says this to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So I'm not planning to spend much time. If this obviously uh, for you is an issue to grow in, we've talked about this a, a fair bit here and there over the years. Um, God's sovereignty and everything we're not going to spend a long time on other than to simply say um, this is an example of God's providence that when they say uh, or when he says excuse me that they meant evil against him um, Joseph doesn't say and God used it for good sort of like a master chess player he turned around and just was able to take their evil action Joseph specifically says God meant it for good And we can know this because he has an ultimate purpose in there in the verse to save a bunch of people from starving to death. There was a famine for seven years to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. That's what happened. He had that dream, seven years of plenty, seven years of of want. That's what he tells him. As for you, you meant it evil. God meant it for good. Um, I think this is uh, Lawson's. I've heard it before, though. He summarizes and simply says, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. The crooked stick, of course, is Joseph's brothers in the example. A bunch of wretched sinners who were extremely hateful to their brother. Their brother was a bit of a a, uh, prideful, uh, annoying little kid as well. It sure seems to be. They were pretty wicked, yet God can still draw a straight line. In other words, he can be morally good with immoral uh, objects. Obviously, Romans 8, 28, um, the, the most, maybe one of the most important verses in the New Testament. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Emphasis on all, an emphasis on that they work together for good. I like to say sometimes that this when you're talking about the sovereignty of God, sovereignty and providence overlap a great deal. But either way, when you're talking about it, it's not just that God is providential or that God is sovereign, period. It's that he's providential for your good. Right? He's not just a supreme math equation that makes everything work in some particular abstract way. He works it for your good. Stephen Lawson comments on this and says, these lines intersect, these kind of things in the heavenly realms in which God is this intricately involved, these lines intersect far above our heads, but bring great comfort to our hearts. These lines intersect far above our heads. We can't fully get our mind around this, 
the nature of God's providence. And it's important to be reminded of that, especially for, for those of us who uh, embrace the important and obvious biblical doctrine of God's providence. It's important to remember we can't fully get our head around it. <laughs> uh, certainly not in this life. Certainly not fully. Uh, they intersect far above our complete understanding. But the truth of them, the embrace of this and continued exhortation to do so bring great comfort to our hearts. I don't think there's any greater comfort, actually. We do not know the best decisions in all circumstances. We do not know the best counsel to give in all circumstances, but we know the one who does, as someone has said. And that's certainly true. I mean, just think of the last time someone asked you for counsel on a particular issue, or a couple times ago, whatever. I mean, there's often where I'm like, uh, I know a bunch of things I could say, but I'm not totally sure what the best counsel is. It's tough. It can be very tough. We know the one who knows all the perfect counsel, and he has us in the hand of his hand providentially. And whether we're aware of it, he is working out all things for our ultimate good and his glory. God shows his wisdom in his providential control. Consider additionally... Um, just to take a moment on this, we, this doesn't mean uh, we aren't supposed to try and grow in wisdom ourselves, right? The affirmation that we know the one who has all the answers doesn't mean, you know, as it's maybe for you, it has been for me at times, you kick back in the, la- in the, <laughs> in the lazy boy and watch TV because, well, God just knows and I don't have to worry about anything in that sense. And what you really mean is I don't have to think or try in anything, is a very unbiblical response to this. James says this. James says clearly this good. This isn't there. If any of you lacks wisdom, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. James goes on to say, you don't have because you don't ask. And uh, giving the very simple exhortation. So we are called to grow in wisdom ourselves. Uh, first and foremost, by asking God for it, let him ask. Ask God. Likewise, we grow in wisdom by reading God's word. The skill in living a life pleasing to God comes from reading and obeying his word, Grudem says. Wisdom, the skill of a life, of living a life pleasing to God, comes from reading and obeying his word. Psalm 19.7, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Or Psalm uh, uh, 111, verse 10, or Proverbs 9, verse 10, which are very similar, say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The acknowledgement that God is God and that he knows best, and we acknowledge and bow before him. That's where wisdom starts. It's all very important, all those things. As I said earlier, we're not mainly talking about that. It's, it is important. It is crucial. It's clearly a command to grow in wisdom. It just needs to rest on top of our ultimate trust in the Lord of all wisdom, which is really, really significant. Finally, under providence, this is there, Acts 2, God uh, providentially ordaining the death of his son. Just one more example. Uh, Acts 4, verse 27 says, For truly in the city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is them praying, Peter praying. 
God anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, everybody that was there. And they were gathered, verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God was intimately, providentially involved in the the mocking, torture, and unjust execution of his perfect holy son, sinless son. God was involved in that, Peter and others are saying and praying in, uh, in uh, the Pentecost. And he was there, they were there rather, to do whatever God's, interestingly Peter emphasizes, his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. That's what they were there. God's hand was on it. It was God's plan. Isn't that something? God is providentially involved, and it's perfect. This obviously carries over into the third display of God's wisdom, which is his son, Christ, his Christ, his cross, Christ's cross, and the church, things in which Hebrews says angels long to look. The height of the display of the wisdom of God is found, of course, in Jesus, in the redemptive plan of history. And this is crucial. We're not going to spend nearly as much time on this as as I thought I was going to at first, at first this was going to be just Ephesians 3.10 that we'll talk about briefly, which is his working out of his plan through the church. But his display of himself in his wise workings is preeminently, most significantly, in the redemptive plan through Jesus on the cross. This is the height of the display of God's wisdom. I waited uh, until this section on purpose to mention the fall of man or sin and what God's wisdom has to do with it, or at least talking about it more specifically. It is easier to talk in the abstract, is it not, about all of God's ways are perfect. I mean, some of those quotes, those pithy definitions at the beginning, are, you know, they obviously sound immediately right. He makes all the best decisions, the best outcomes. Um, But once you consider, or maybe you do immediately when you hear that, once you consider the brokenness and sin in the world, it can, of course, though it not... uh, ought not to, but it can trip you up. Certainly can for me. Um, When I think God's means always produce the best outcome, um, it's not uncommon for my mind to think about cancer or disease or suffering or death in all manner of way. And for the cynic or, you know, unbeliever inside of me to say, this is God's perfectly wise plan, right? That would be the first thing any thinking unbeliever like Christopher Hitchens or whomever might say to you in re- if you you know go around throwing flowers in the air proclaiming about God's wisdom with a smile with a very perky smile on your face uh, you know whatever cash in your in your pocket new clothes on your body product in your hair whatever right you have a hedge of protection right God has prote- provided for you well and they come up to you and talk about their uh, little daughter who died of cancer at the age of four Right. It's harder to hold that demeanor, and it ought to be harder to hold that demeanor because it's often a, a wrong demeanor when put to the extreme. We're sorrowful yet always rejoicing, Paul says. So what do we do with that? You know, the question, simply to say, this is God's perfectly wise plan. This is the height of wisdom is all of that in the world. And I want to encourage, it's really important that we respond biblically and thoroughly balanced the way the Bible would have us think to that reality. 
God's perfectly wise plan has within it a great deal of those things. So what gives? That's his perfectly wise plan. And the answer in some ways, uh, this is, you know, you can find a lot better answers than this perhaps in terms of, uh, uh, you know, specifics. But the answer is yes and no. Is that God's perfectly wise plan? Cancer, disease, suffering, death. Uh, Yes and no. No in the sense that God did not bring sin into the world. Man did. You should and ought to love the sovereignty of God. We should and ought to embrace it for all the above mentioned reasons. Uh, Maybe the height of which is the great comfort that we have to trust in our God. But that doesn't mean that he sinned. Uh, He didn't. Adam brought sin into the world. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. So Paul says, sin and death and the subsequent uh, curse and fall and brokenness came into the world because of Adam and Eve, but Adam was the, the head. He was finally responsible. And he sinned. That's why sin and death came into the world. So why are sin and death here? One important answer, Paul says, he just you know, b- blames Adam rightly, so to speak. Because Adam sinned. That's why it came into the world. So in that sense, when we say, is this God's perfectly wise plan, there is a sense in which we say, well, you know, that's my tongue. Well, no, not in this sense. If, if, if what you mean is there's no distinction be, to be made in any way of God's will, evil, good, there's no difference. It's just God's will. That's not the way the Bible talks. Sin and death came because of Adam. Adam was responsible for his sin and the subsequent fall of man and the curse of God. Adam was responsible for that. We should say that and believe that. It's very important. Listen to Romans 8.20. Uh, for the creation was subjected to futility. He's talking about the fall of man here in Romans 8. The creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, the Lord subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul in Romans 8 is saying that what happened, uh, in one way to describe it, is a bondage to corruption. Right? Bondage in and of itself is not good. God subjected the creation to futility, in other words, in response to the fall of man. So again, I mean, I just happen to know you guys well enough that some of you believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, in the providence of God, and that's good and right. Um, As I've said, it's also true to say God responded to the fall of man. uh, or God responded. He subjected the creation to futility. He cursed it in response to Adam's sin. Therefore, God's good and perfect plan was taking into account the tragic reality of a fallen world. His plan was taking into account the tragic reality of a fallen world. It's what God had to work with, in other words. And his plan and choices are still the best. 
in a situation in which we live, which is a fallen world. Tozer says this, the inspired writers insist that the whole creation now groans and travails under the mighty shock of the fall. Groans and travails under the mighty shock of the fall, which will one day finally be renewed. And yet through it all, God's perfectly wise plan was to atone for the sin of the world by the death of his son, the highest display of his love. It's not dismissing God's sovereignty in any way to say these things. In other words, in the ultimate of senses, God had a plan. Sinners and sinners are still responsible for sin and God is good. The end result was the display of his love in the highest degree that Romans uh, talks about, Romans 9 and Revelation 5. God had a plan. Sinners are still responsible for sin and God is good. And this is the height of his plan, (laughs) right? So when I say that the display of God's wisdom is Christ, his cross, and the church, Christ and his cross was a plan. The display of God in all of his wisdom to sacrifice himself for undeserving sinners is the height of the display of his wisdom. It was good and wise and the means by which he did it. So God's wisdom, in other words, was to display the highest end. This is an important question. Whether you know it or not, in your head, there's an answer to that question. What is the highest end? What is the highest goal, the highest purpose that God has in the world? God's wisdom was to display that, to accomplish that. And that end is contained in his son and the sacrifice that he made for sin. So two verses, we're almost done. Colossians 2, 2 through 4, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, he's talking about believers, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom This was a mystery, hidden. And he goes on to specify, Paul does, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And secondly, 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24, very famous verse, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. Oh. Oh.
I went looking for this little one. The chair works every time. It does. Three times now. Slowly descend. That was so scary. We live here for real. Where's the bathroom? I'm a. The back cave? The back door. The back door. Sealed up. The back guys. Those could have just been in here. The back guys were. The back guys were our plan to come again. Because, you know, we, as you know, spent a bunch of money to fix this. It's probably the leftovers, but we'll see. I think they're getting there. He's plenty alive. I don't know if he's been stuck in here for that long. Okay, my goodness. Talk about distraction. Doesn't get much more distracting than that. I thought it was a bird at first, and I was like, oh, that's a kind of cool bird. <laughs> like a bat bird. It almost looks like a bat. Okay, my goodness. I think you left off on stumbling blocks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that includes, that, you know, providence of God, missed wisdom somehow. All right. What are we talking about? Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the height of God's uh, wise plan. My gosh, I'm distracted now. Uh, we're almost done. 1 Corinthians 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified, oh yeah, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul makes a really specific uh, claim and exhortation that it looks like foolishness, um, folly to Gentiles, and it's a serious problem for the Jews because Christ was killed. He was sacrificed. There wasn't a lot of understanding. But it is the wisdom of God. It's the height of the display of God's power and God's wisdom, which is the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners. So, uh, wrap up. God's plan through the atoning death of his son is the wisest goal. Accomplished by the best means, displaying the glory of the justice and mercy of God. And so, I'll end here, and we can talk more about this. This, that whole situation, the church is called to show the world in continuing ways. The churches. This is what he says in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, but especially verse 10. This grace, Paul says, this grace was given to me to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, be now me, uh, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So specifically in verse 10, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known to the world. Which is quite something, I think, by way of uh, thinking about the nature of the church, that he's not just saying you go and preach the wisdom of God in dying for his uh, people, in sacrificing himself, but that it's through the church it's shown, it's made known. And I think, and want to emphasize anyways, the nature of that is that how we live out the gospel truth in community, that namely we are a new community 
a new family, a new nation state that we call the church. It's God's way of wisdom to a dying world that displays that. The church is meant to manifest that to the world, specifically showing God's wisdom. That the nature of what the gospel is is meant to be shown and lived out in community of the church. How vastly significant uh, that makes the central role of the church in our lives. It's meant to be anyways. So, so there's the wisdom of God. Let me take a break, pray, and we can break into some small groups and pray and talk. <laughs>